Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, hi, everybody. Fasten your seatbelts. You are in for a ride. This is going to be so much fun. My guest today, I have two men, Dr. Malcolm Lesavoy and Cliff Midell. Now, Dr. Lesavoy is a member of the American Board of Plastic Surgery, a certified plastic surgeon, and a professor of plastic and reconstructive surgery at UCLA Medical Center, and now he's in private practice in Beverly Hills. And Cliff is a spokesperson, speaker, and two-time Olympian. And what you're going to hear is how this all happened. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You're so welcome. And I think we'll start with you, Dr. Lesavoy. If I may call you Malcolm going forward, may I, is that okay Absolutely. with you? Well, you Alrighty, don't have to call so Malcolm. me going forward, just Malcolm. Okay, there we go. There, that's joke one if anybody is keeping track. All right. So <laughs> I told you this is going to be fun. So, so please tell our listeners a little bit about your background, sir. Uh, yes, I'm... Uh, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeon. I've been professor at UCLA Medical Center and chief of plastic surgery at uh, Harvard General Hospital in, uh, in Los Angeles for 25 years, and now I'm in private practice. So while I was um, uh, uh, full-time uh, at UCLA, I did uh, mostly reconstructive surgery, um, all extremities, hand surgery. I've written three books on plastic surgery and hand surgery and started the procedures, uh, started the service, the hand surgery service at UCLA and hand hand surgery. And mm-hmm. uh, did all kinds of uh, craniofacial surgery, cleft lip, cleft palate, things of that sort, anesthetic surgery. But now I'm in private practice uh, in Beverly Hills doing mostly aesthetic surgery. And, Got it. But I was, yeah. Born and raised in Pennsylvania, went to college oh. in North Carolina, and, hmm. and um, did uh, general surgery, uh, medical school and general surgery in Chicago, and then plastic and reconstructive surgery in Miami um, under Dr. Ralph Millard, and then uh, was hired to come to uh, UCLA and, and uh, mm-hmm. be a full-time professor there, and, and uh, here we are. Wow, that's that's exciting. Well, I have a I have a daughter that's a UCLA alum. It's a it's a very it's a very it's a wonderful school to be proud to be associated with. Yes. Um, so, Cliff, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I'm essentially an accident survivor, so I'll start off with that. It's a shocking story, but we'll get into that a little bit later on. But anyway, uh, so I was born and raised in Manhattan Beach, California, kind of a, you know, a, a young kid growing up here at the beach cities, uh, enjoyed a lot mm-hmm. of sports, 
Uh, and but nowadays uh, I end up um, a vice president for a development company, so I do that for my nine to five. But I have an incredible passion, and I really like to go out and do public speaking. So uh, that being said, uh, I started my uh, public speaking career after I retired uh, from the Olympics uh, in Sydney, 2000, and I started going back out there and really trying to inspire people essentially to you know be the best that they can be because i do a lot of motivational inspirational talks but i think more on the important side and the real passion side is to uh, really hit the boots on the ground to those people that are out working construction and and really talk about how important it is to be able to work safe because you know we all have families we all have loved ones that really care about us a lot and it's you know our personal responsibility to make sure that not only do we go to work safe, but also come home at the end of the day. So that's my big passion uh, is being able to go out there and do motivational talks on that. I think that's so interesting. And, and I just, a side note here. So I talked about my daughter that went to UCLA and got a degree in theater arts. However, she's in her 17th year of commercial construction, running a very large job um, downtown at LACMA, and safety is critical in what she does in that work. And we're going to get a little bit more into what you did and what happened to you. But I just I do think that's that's an important subject for you to talk about. Why don't you Why don't you tell our listeners how it was that you came to meet each other? Uh, well, essentially, there's there's a couple of phases to uh, how Dr. Lesovo and I ended up meeting. I'll let him talk about. Uh, one of his parts, but my initial part was is that uh, I was going through this extreme adversity uh, where I was uh, in a hospital for about a month in, in time. Uh, I had suffered a severe electrical accident, and I was at the, at the risk of losing both of my legs, and my mother ended up calling Dr. Lesavoy, and that's how initially uh, I was able to meet Dr. Lesavoy on the first standpoint, and then Later on, he can explain how we met the second time. So that's essentially our first introduction. It was uh, a very incredible introduction, especially for those people that know what it's like facing extreme adversity, you know, when your back is up against the wall. And uh, when I first met Dr. Lesavoy, he lit this flame of hope in my heart that he was going to be Mm -hmm. able to do some good for me and save my legs. Yeah, so that was our first introduction. <laughs> what happened that 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 you met him? What 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 was the situation that caused the two of you to meet? Uh well what happened was is that uh you know, I was uh, 19 20 years of age. I was working on a construction site at that time, you know, my hopes were to develop a trade, uh, but at the same time be able to educate myself. So I was going through community college as well and going to trade school. And I was working on a job uh, one morning doing a task that I had done many times, uh, and I was working with a coworker, and I ended up operating a jackhammer, and I pierced three power lines uh, that were beneath this concrete, and each one of them had 4,160 volts. So I received an enormous uh, electrical shock, and uh, I ended up having a cardiac arrest. Uh, I was very fortunate that uh, first responders were very close by, uh, but like my mom always says, I guess you can't kill a weed, right? You're here for a reason. So there's always <laughs> an intent for all of us to be here. But, you know, you know, Dr. Lessonboy is perfect at explaining, you know, how electricity works uh, when you're involved in an incident and what type of damages I had. Well, I yeah, think so... that would be great. Go ahead, Malcolm. Why don't you share that part? Okay. 
So, uh, you know, when this uh, occurred to Cliff, uh, the amount of energy, of electrical energy that he received, uh, actually, uh, we found out, uh, is about three times the amount that is used in the electric chair. Um, oh, wow. Uh, for, for bad people. And, and he, he survived, uh, fortunately, and uh, mm-hmm. was then taken to one of the local hospitals in the South Bay area here <clears throat> of Los Angeles. Uh, where they uh, uh, did immediate uh, uh, resuscitation and care. Uh, and essentially, um, electrical burns are all kinds. Of, there are three different kinds of burns that I mentioned. Um, there are flame burns, heat burns, you know, from a fire. And you can see mm-hmm. it, you know, burns, burns and destroys uh, the outer skin and can be somewhat deeper. Then there are electrical burns, which is this electrical energy that essentially uh, enters your body from the point of contact and then has to exit someplace. Uh, but mm. it is, uh, in my opinion, anyhow, more severe than, well, the old burns are, are really bad. But uh, what happens right. is you can't see the actual damage because it goes through your body, usually burns muscles and nerves and, and blood vessels that you can't see because it's inside and then exits and and in his particular case, the uh, the burns exited from the back of his scalp and his knees. Uh, it's conceivable that when this occurred, he probably dropped to his knees and then hit the ground, essentially, and mm-hmm. was grounded. And that's where the energy exploded. So it, it, it essentially destroyed both of his knees. And then there's a third kind of uh, burn where you can burn by your girlfriend or your boyfriend and uh, or your husband or wife. Uh, that's just a joke. But anyhow, uh, that's the other the other kind of burn. So uh, with with uh, with his injuries, uh, he had a, a immediate care and was in the hospital for about a month. And and uh, necrotic tissue, dead tissue, was removed from the back of his skull, from his back, and from mm. his uh, knees. And that's where the problem uh, occurred uh, because. Um, it, it, it damaged his knees, his lower extremities so severely that the doctors there were going to remove both of his legs above the knee so he would have bilateral above-knee amputations. And fortunately for Cliff, um, his uh, parents, his mother specifically, stepped in, and maybe Cliff can uh, go further with that uh, situation. Yep. You want to, yeah, want, to, so when, want to go ahead, Cliff. Yeah. So one of the biggest things that a lot of people don't really realize, especially you know when you're speaking on occupational health and safety, you know worker safety, is that you know you, there's the, the iceberg and we see the top of it where an individual gets into an accident, but what we don't see is what lies beneath the water. And what lies beneath the water oftentimes are our immediate family that had to get involved in this. And you know my parents received a phone call from the superintendent on the work site saying that Cliff's been involved in a bad accident and he followed up with, well, we don't know if he's going to live or not. So you can imagine my mom, I think she was about 42 years of age when she gets this call. And, you know, we're not, as as humans, we're not trained in adversity 101. You know, these traumatic experiences just happen just like that. And you have to react whether you're an individual Mm -hmm. or a family. And my situation was very dire because I was completely unconscious. I was fighting for my life. Uh, my mom gets this call, uh, and both parents show up to the hospital. 
uh, and they're, you know, immersed in this extreme traumatic situation. And everybody essentially tells my mom, you know, hey, listen, lady, you know, you can't come into the trauma room right now. Your, your son's in, in critical state. And I've learned in the past that's one of the things that you never tell a mother is the word no. Uh, my mom kind of took it as on. <laughs> Every time you told her no, it meant on. And so anyway, she barges into the yeah, she barges into the room there, and there I was uh, laying on this breadboard. And my knees were smoldering, and you know my mother really didn't know what to do. The only thing that she could do at that time was whisper into my ear, "Fight as hard as you possibly can fight uh, to mm-hmm. live." And you know the power of the human spirit is immense. Uh, it's amazing what we can do uh, when we're conscious. You know, I always like to say uh, we're all ordinary people, but we have the ability to accomplish the extraordinary. It's all from the neck up. But even in an unconscious state, it's amazing uh, the power of the human spirit. And, you know, luckily uh, I'm here today to talk about this. I lived, right? But mm-hmm. it was a very rocky road for my mom and dad going forward. You know, the snowball effect just kept getting worse, bigger and bigger. And then, uh, we were put to this situation where I was going to have, you know, both of my knees, uh, legs amputated at one point in time. My mm-hmm. father uh, told me a story where he and my younger brother were coming up in an elevator and the doors opened up and here these doctors had walked in, you know, they were wearing their white coats and everything and they were, you know, talking about all their different clinical situations that they were having their cases uh, until one of the doctors said, hey, uh, did you hear about the kid up in ICU? And that is when my father, standing in the back of the elevator, developed this huge lump in his throat, and he knew that our family was in a world of hurt because what the doctor had said mm. was they're probably going to have to do bilateral AKs uh, on that kid, which is amputating above the knees. And so you can imagine when the news gets up to the ICU, and there's my mom standing there, right? No means on. Everybody in our audience can, <laughs> uh, you know, take that in there way of visioning this and uh, so my mother was uh, you know relentless and that's when she ended up uh, trying to be as resourceful as possible uh, and then that's when she had uh, talked to Dr. Lessevoy and he can explain uh, what that telephone call was all about. Yes, why don't you, what, what happened after that, what happened next? Very interesting, so um, I'm in my clinic uh, seeing patients at UCLA and I get this phone call from this uh, lady uh, who uh, asked me to come and see uh, her son. And she, she had heard that uh, I did this uh, kind of innovative surgeries and things of that sort, or, or the, uh, not brand-new surgeries, but um, types of surgeries that are unusual. And mm-hmm. uh, said that her, her son was in this hospital uh, would I come and see him? I said, well, no. I mean, I, I only work at UCLA, and and uh, that's not my hospital. But uh, So she hung up and then and then called back and was crying. And mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of a, you know. Stop. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll come down and just uh, see him as a, as a family member or something. And, mm. and so I did come down uh, to his uh to his room at, at this uh, other hospital and uh, looked at things and said, well, maybe we could do something. And if I could take him up to UCLA, uh, we'll do some surgery and hopefully uh, save his legs. But the doctors there were very reticent about uh, uh, discharging him because uh, they had him on the schedule for the following morning to remove both of his legs above the knees. And so we had a little confrontation uh with the doctors and 
finally we were able to convince them to at least let me try. And I mm-hmm. said, so let me let me bring them up, and if we fail, then uh, uh, you know I'll send them back down, and you can then take his legs off. And and uh, so they they kind of uh, acquiesced. Um, and so, uh, but basically, I uh, I went into to meet Cliff, and I think he remembers when I was there, uh, Cliff. Um, yeah, I, do you I, that remember was, that? Uh, like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was like yesterday. I remember that very well. And like I had mentioned, uh, as we first started off on the conversation, you know, adversity. I always like to say it's like death and taxes. It's just a matter of when we're going to go through it, right? And it's a management process. Right. You know, we got to learn. That if we get knocked down our, on our butt, we got to be able to develop that resilience and that determination to be able to get back up and stand up again and fight that fight. But there are sometimes, you know, and our audience, all of our audience members can probably imagine this. I mean, you do face adversities that sometimes your back is up against the wall. You have absolutely mm-hmm. no hope, and you want to throw the towel in. You just want to quit because you know it's going to be too hard or you don't think you're going to make it. And that's right. kind of the situation that I was in at the time. And then... Uh, you can imagine, uh, I only remember three days in a one-month period when I was at the burn center, and this one night, this gentleman walks in, and he was wearing his uh, signature cowboy boots. He was wearing jeans, and he had a white type of T-shirt on with these big muscles and this very deep voice, as everybody can hear now how great of a voice <laughs> Dr. Lesavoy has. Uh, but the unique thing about it is, as he walked into the room, he acknowledged my folks, uh, and the doctors that were in the room, but he came straight to my bed and he put his hand on my shoulder and he says, hey, Cliff, with his deep voice, I'm Mal Lesavoy and I'm here to take a look at your legs. Not Dr. Lesavoy, not uh, Malcolm Lesavoy or anything like that. I'm Mal and I'm here to take a look at your legs. And I can tell you when your back is up against a wall and mm-hmm. you're going to lose everything in your life, you know, you're even possibly fighting for life. It's amazing what you grab onto, what the human spirit grabs onto. And at that time, I literally grabbed onto Dr. Lesavoy, just hoping that he was going to be able to do some good. So that was the first point in my story where he was able to light this flame of hope in my heart that I just maybe, Mm -hmm. just maybe might be able to get through this situation. And that's basically (sighs) the first time I met Dr. Lesavoy, but... Uh, but it was a very, very powerful moment, and and you can imagine uh, what that was. I was thinking, you know, uh, who let the janitor in, right? But here came this <laughs> immense man with this enormous power, and, you know, you're thinking a doctor is going to have the white coat on and all that, yeah. and he came in and, and changed my life forever. And it's really hard to describe uh, this verbally, but emotionally, I always get choked up uh, when I think I about that pivotal moment in my life where I met Mel uh, and not only thankfully and I'm blessed for it that many years later uh, we became incredible friends but I had the opportunity to be under his care uh, and the way things turned out turned out in in a very positive manner we did not know uh, at that time you know what was going to happen with the legs you know was I ever going to be able to walk or run again uh, no, I can't run and all that, but I can walk. Uh, I'm still missing a third of the knee compartments. But uh, I remember mm. I had a cast on all the way from my hips down to my ankles. And uh, Dr. Lesavoy ended up opening up the cast so he can observe and provide a diagnosis as to what my situation was. And I remember he said two things. First of all, don't look down. 
<laughs> and I'm very bad at instructions. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not very good at that. So there was my big takeaway was essentially is at that moment and point in time, I still have that smell in my nose of what that burned flesh smells like. Mm. I can smell it today. Mm. And then I knew at that time I was never under any circumstance going to be the same Cliff Meidel as I was before. Volleyball on the beach, running, uh, being able to look normal in clothes and all of that. Uh, I was up against a new chapter in life where I was going to have to essentially reinvent myself and get through this Mm -hmm. difficult adversity. And then that's when I was placed into the care uh, of Dr. Lesavoy. Well, so, so Malcolm, let me ask you, so how did your decades-long friendship evolve? Because it did evolve, didn't it? Yes, it did. So um, uh, going back just a little bit, so we were able to uh, bring him up to UCLA, and I did a, a number of procedures and operations uh, with muscle flaps and blood vessels and skin grafts and stuff. And, and uh, we were able to provide enough uh, coverage and um, blood supply to the area that that he did not have to have his legs amputated. However, that's that was just the very beginning. That was the easy part. The hard part was what Cliff had to do, because Cliff now had to be rehabilitated. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he was just in bed, wouldn't get out. He was, you know, 19 year old. A uh, snotty kid to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. You know, used to be an athlete and knew that he wasn't going to be an athlete anymore. And so uh, I had to encourage him, uh, basically kick his ass a couple times mm-hmm. a week while he was in the hospital to get out of bed, to to uh, cooperate with the physical therapists, the occupational therapists, um, to uh, to really get moving. And and mm-hmm. basically um, he had the gumption. He's truly the hero of this story um, uh, because uh, he did it. Um, and uh, after a couple of months uh, in the hospital with rehabilitation and physical therapy and things of that sort, he would take one step forward, two steps backward, and then another two steps forward, and one step back, and so on and so forth, and really progress. And then after wow. this time period, I basically, I basically lost track of him. Uh, he was discharged, and and uh you know we were just moving on in in life and mm-hmm. in in my career and in, and in his career and then 10 years later and this is where the mm-hmm. story kind of becomes interesting uh mm-hmm. it was during uh the Atlanta Olympics so it was 1996 cliff 96 uh-huh yes yeah, yep 96 uh where it was on a sunday morning and uh my phone starts ringing and um and I answered the phone, and people kept calling me and said, "You have to turn on CBS or NBC. I can't remember the station that uh, or the, that uh, the Olympics was on, the Atlanta Olympics." I said, "There's this guy that's uh, an Olympian, and and uh, he's being interviewed by these people, and they say that uh, you're the guy that saved his life, that inspired him, and so mm. on and so forth." And there it is. It's Cliff Michael, who is an oh, Olympian God. Uh, at oh, the Atlanta Olympics. It's a, Wow. It's unbelievable. I, I'm, I'm getting, I, I'm getting oh. goosebumps just telling you this story. I, I'm getting goosebumps hearing you say what, how shocking that must have been for you to to experience that. I just exactly. that must have been so incredibly emotional for you. No, I can, it, I can it was. see. Yeah. Well, Cliff, no, I'm curious. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. 
when yeah, you look no, back gonna... in, in that yeah. whole thing, uh, you know, when you look back at, uh, you know, when Dr. Lesavoy, when I first met him, uh, but then as he said that, you know, he was very actively engaged in my rehabilitation because, as you know, when you go through extreme adversity, and many of our audience mm-hmm. members probably understand this, as you go through these stages of grievance, you know, when you're angry, uh, you're, you're, you know, ticked off, and there was always asking the question, you know, why did this happen to me? Uh, so right. you go through a lot of this process and ultimately you get to this point where there's a fork in the road where either either you could throw the towel in uh, or you can you know move forward and go into the direction of getting through this you know getting knocked on the on your butt and being able to brush mm-hmm. yourself back off when you stand up and say I'm going to do this but the big question right. is is you know a lot of times you're looking down a tunnel and you can't see the light at the end of it and you don't know how to right. do that well that's what you know Dr. Lesavoy stepped in uh, as I was going through the rehabilitation and he said hey Cliff listen, I've done my 50% where I've done the surgery. You're going to have to come up with the balance of the equation. Wow. Of course, me not hmm. being very good at math, uh, I really didn't understand at a young age. <laughs> what does that really mean? Oh, and man. what Dr. Lesavoy was alluding to was is that when you're going through adversity, uh, whether it's setting goals in life or going through an extreme challenge, like I was uh, trying to learn how to walk again, uh, is that you're going to have to drive up that other the percentage of the equation is driving up the willpower, first of all. Uh, secondly, you can't see the light at the end of the tel- tunnel, so what do you have to do at that standpoint? You have to believe in yourself that you're going mm-hmm. to be able to do that. And that's that acceptance right. phase you know, during these stages of grievance. It's the belief process, and it's amazing how powerful, you know, creative visualization is. And uh, Dr. Lesavoy lit that flame of hope again, mm. again, in my heart that I would get through this process. And like he said, he kicked me in the butt and really inspired wow. me and said, listen, you got to get out of this hospital and get to a normal life. Uh, and, you know, when you're going through adversity like that, there's a lot of shame involved in all of this. And, you know, I wasn't happy of the way I looked or who I was and so on and so forth. And uh, he really stepped in and kicked me into high gear to be able to not only get through this process where we talk about this Olympic thing, uh, but also make me believe in who I am and yes, I had the ability to do it, you know, and that's what the most important part of this entire sure. relationship and how it fostered is that uh, on many different fronts, you know, he had stepped in uh, and provided, you know, what he needed to provide, whether it was in the role of a doctor or in the role of a second father, if that's proper to say that. Uh, and right. Mentor, no, I get that. You know, all of it mentor. came together, you know, sure. to be able to get me through this. Yeah. I get yeah, it. but to put this in perspective, Marcia, uh, yes, that sir. was just at the very beginning. Then for uh-huh. ten years, I never heard from this guy. I never saw him. I didn't. Uh, we uh-huh. totally lost lost contact sure. with each other. And so, I mean, looking looking now, ten years later, when this person is an Olympian, uh, because yeah. his brother said. Uh, Listen, you know, you can't run anymore. You can definitely walk. But look at your upper body. You could use that. And that's that's when he mm-hmm. kind of transformed his body, transformed himself, not because of me, because uh, of suggestions from his brother. And using his God-given talents, his God-given physical ability um, of his upper body uh, for 10 years working out, right. uh, learning, struggling, so on and so forth, and becomes an Olympian, Olympic 
uh, kayaker and and un- unbelievable. So it had nothing to do with me except at the very 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 beginning of this of this long journey that he did. Um, and, but that's how we well, we came in contact. Right. Um, uh, ten years later, which was uh, unbelievable. But I'm sure he would say, if it weren't for you, he wouldn't have had that Olympic experience. But if, um, yeah, if and I, I would have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's Cliff, just real briefly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I just real briefly because I really want to talk about um, your Olympic experience. But did you could you go back into construction after you recovered, or did you leave that industry? No, I was not able to do any type of manual labor. I was missing a third of my knee compartment in both legs. So I was, you know, I had knee immobilizers and crutches until ultimately Uh I was able to wean myself off of that. Uh, And, uh, you know, I still walked with knee braces. But uh, my reintroduction into construction, now I'm a spokesperson for Georgia 811, uh, but the whole part behind that started after I retired from the Olympics. I got back into construction as being a speaker and and somebody that could go out and provide a testimony to those people that are boots on the ground that are working in the ditches and all that stuff and working on the construction sites. And so this, that was my contribution to be able to going back into the trade. But I can tell you now that, yeah, I really do miss not having that opportunity of being able to, work into the trades and, and become a builder and all of that hmm. stuff. I think that, you know, if I, if there is an empty emptiness uh, in today's time, as I, if I could unreal the tape, I would definitely want to go back and be able to hmm. uh, have had that opportunity of being a tradesman, because I think it's an important part of us as human beings, you know, growing, whether we're men or women, I think it's an important part of the whole process is being able to do something sure. that you're passionate about and something that you like to accomplish. Well, let's, uh, if let's I could talk step about in the... just a touch. Sure, go right. Go ahead. I, I was just going just gonna, just a little bit, and that is, after the Olympic uh, Games in Atlanta in 1996, uh, four years later, Cliff also still an Olympian uh, at the Sydney Olympics, and and this right. is I think one of the highlights, and and the highlight was such that uh, as we all remember. The uh, opening ceremonies of of the Olympics, which are coming up in Paris uh, soon, um, the the entire situation of 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 Cliff and the U.S. Olympic team, what 600 strong, the largest one, vote for one person to carry the flag at the yes. opening ceremonies. Yes. And there you go. They voted for Cliff Meidel to carry that right. flag and walk on two legs around the yep. entire stadium carrying that flag. I mean, I'm getting the chills just telling you this again, and we've talked about this, I don't know how many innumerable times. But, uh, I mean, what 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 an unbelievable situation. Uh, what an unbelievable accomplishment of this man uh, after such a tremendous adverse uh, situation, traumatically, mm-hmm. emotionally, physically. Um, psychologically. And he was young. Uh, he was young. Exactly. He was 19. Exactly. Gosh, exactly. his life was ahead of him. Well, let, let, me, let me interrupt you here because what I'd like to find out from Cliff is how that all happened. How, did it, how is it that you became an Olympic um, athlete in the 1996, um, the original, the, your first Olympics before the 2001 in Sydney? How did that, how did that come about? 
Well, I needed a channel. I needed to get channel this energy. And as Mal had mentioned, that my brother was a very significant role in it. And he basically it got me to believe in who I was and utilize the tools that God gave me, which was my upper body, because I ended up doing a lot of rehabilitation, uh, you know, three times as much that was recommended. And I spent a lot of time in the weight room. And, and he introduced me into uh, canoe paddling, which I got involved with. Uh, and after 10 years, you know, having mentors, uh, becoming extremely physically fit, being able to, you know, travel the world and, and, and race canoes and, and kayaks and things like that. And, uh, you know, I was ultimately able to accomplish my dream uh, by going to the Olympic Games. And, you know, I've had, you know, besides Dr. Lesavoy, I also had uh, mentors. Uh, there was a mm-hmm. gentleman that I used to throw newspapers to in Manhattan Beach. His name is Tom Hintmouse. <laughs> And he was a local uh, two-time Olympian as well. And he yeah. really inspired me to be able to go out there. And he planted that Olympic seed. And uh, he was one of the first and most successful Calvin Klein male models ever. <laughs> and But he was a, a, a really instrumental part about that. And then also Greg Barton, you know, who is a, two, who is a two-time Olympic champion in sprint kayaking. And, you know, just seeing how he was, I really was a big dreamer as a young kid i just dreamt you know that i wanted to be like this guy in fact uh, i remember that when i was in seventh grade i used to run down the ramp at pe and i would get into this euphoric high running down the ramp and i would be dreaming about competing in this large arena but never Hmm. ever would i ever have thought that i would be able to accomplish anything like that it was just a dream as a young kid and then here i was walking into the opening ceremony in atlanta I was grabbing onto my coach's arm. He was helping me go down this ramp. And then all of a sudden, it felt like time had stopped. My blood was like oil. It was, you know, really thick. And all of a sudden, I realized, hey, wait a second. This is the dream that I had ever since I was a young little kid. And I think what the moral of the story is is that, you know, some people will say, well, this, this gal is lucky because she accomplished that, or he's lucky because he did that. But I think that... Uh, A good definition of being lucky is where persistence meets opportunity. It's all about the neck up. It's how bad we want to accomplish something, and we put our mind to it, and we put our our human strengths, and we be the best person that we can be, and we go out there and try to accomplish that. And that's essentially how I got into the Olympics, you know, meeting tons of people at the canoe club and having positive, you know, response, having a belonging of something – and that kind of propelled that energy for me to want to go out there and be the best kayaker that Cliff Meidel could be. I'm going to just quickly spell your names because people that are listening may want to go visit your websites, although I will certainly include that in our follow-up blog. But Chris's, uh, Cliff's last name is spelled M-E-I-D-E-L. Actually, I'm sorry, D-L. I said that wrong. M M E I D L. That's right. I, I, yeah. I said it incorrectly because I was looking at it wrong. And Dr. Lesavoy's, um, he also has a, a website, and you can find him. I'm going to spell Lesavoy for you, which is L E S A V O Y Lesavoy Plastic Surgery dot com, and you can find him too. And when you when you go to that website, you're going to go, Oh, Dr. Phil, interesting. He was working with Dr. Phil. Um, But we aren't going to talk about Dr. Phil because this is about you guys. Um, Back to the Olympics. So 
did, did you have to go, I mean, for people that have never been in the Olympics, did you have to go through this enormous tryout to be able to get selected to be on the team? I mean, how many people were on the team? Uh, well, we had, uh, in 96, uh, we had nine uh, guys on the team, and then we had a, a team of gals as well. <coughs> Excuse mm-hmm. me. Then in Sydney, we had uh, another six. So uh, one of the things is, is when going to the Olympics, first of all, you've got to get engaged in the sport, right? And then you've got to go right. through, you know, being able to train. And for me, you know, we always say accident Olympics, but, you know, there's 10 years of uh, a lot of workload that goes into that process, you know. And so for me, I had to not only compete on a national level, but I had to go race internationally and things of that nature. And then, you know, ultimately the United States has its selection process. And so I had to go to the Olympic trials and I did that. And I uh, went to various different competitions across the country. And then, you know, ultimately I was able to make the Olympic team, you know, both times by doing that and qualifying boats uh, in Europe at the World Championships and all that. But that's essentially how wow. all that kind of comes together. It's a long process. Uh, there's a lot of setbacks. Uh, you know, you, we like Dr. Lessonboy said earlier, one step forward, two steps back, and that's the way life works, mm-hmm. right? And nothing, you know, you could be one of the best paddlers on the Olympic team, and you may not make the team uh, at trials because you may, uh, you know, uh, have an issue, you know, or may not uh, take that right stroke. Our sport is highly European-dominated, and uh, you could win by the thickness of a credit card over a three-minute and 30-second race. Wow. Uh, so Isn't it's that a, something? a very intense process, yeah, and there's no guarantees with anything, yeah. How is it you got selected to be the um, flag bearer? How, I mean, only one – you said there were, were there 600 people there, you said, at the uh, Sydney Olympics? Yeah, that's the size of the entire United States delegation, anywhere from 300 to 600, something of that nature. But so what happens right. is, is that each sport has a team captain, and, and Sydney, I believe it was 26 sports that we had, so your beach volleyball, uh, your track and field, everybody has a team captain, and they send them to a very formal voting process where they all sit, uh, and there's a presentation in terms of each team captain who they would like to elect as a flag bearer, and everybody comes up with these stories and all that, and, and the entire uh, uh, team captains vote on this whole process, and that's how it all goes through. Yeah, very formal. Uh, and I remember I was in Narrabeen, Australia, at a training camp for about a month before Sydney, and I had no idea really that this was going to happen because, you know, we had a lot of people on our team that are better deserving, you know, for these things. And then I remember I came back and my team mate, Pete Newton, said, dude, you're not going to believe this. And I go, what? He goes, you got elected as the flag bearer. And I thought, oh, come on, guys. This is just all nonsense because we all play jokes on each other all the time, right? Yeah, that's the fun part of being on a team. And uh, so then they said, no, you're the team, you're the flag bearer. And they all started punching me and all that stuff. Uh, But then, you know, all the formality happened where you do all your interviewing and then, you know, you're getting ready for that big night at the opening ceremony. And for mm-hmm. me, it was really big because, A, I walk like Bambi, right? Uh, and I remember standing <laughs> there uh, with two billion, oh. 2 billion viewers, I think it was, on TV. And oh, I'm man. holding this, this, uh, the American flag. The pole is aluminum drizzling out there, and it's conductive. Right? Just kidding. Uh oh. For our audience, Uh-oh. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I was holding the uh, the American flag, and I was a couple of steps ahead of the entire delegation. I was sure. so nervous. The only thing I could tell myself was, "Whatever you do, Cliff, don't trip." And I remember that <laughs> this lady was screaming in my ear, "Okay, Cliff, get ready, Team USA, you're ready to go." And you know, you could imagine a couple of hundred thousand people in the in the audience, and. 
there was the Bill Gates and all these people and all that. And and I remember uh, taking a deep breath, and my heart was coming out of my chest. And I remember looking over my shoulder, looking over my shoulder, and the only thing that I could see was a sea of red, white, and blue behind me. It was the entire United States delegation following me in, and that was the most proud moment of my life. And you know, I'm you know not only incredibly proud to be an American, but I'm so proud to be able to represent my country, uh, racing at two uh, Olympic Games and all of that. It's a, an incredible experience. I've heard this story innumerable times, and every single time I get the goosebumps. It's almost well, impossible to to, not to, to to describe. Yeah, and not to, not well, to exactly. You, but, you know, Malcolm, here's the thing, and and you are a very humble man. And and I'm sure that Cliff would agree with that. And that is, had and let's 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 not forget about your mom here because she played a huge role in this. Yeah. Had your mom not gotten in touch with Dr. Lesavoy, this would never have happened. We wouldn't be having this conversation right now. And that's what I find just so so remarkable, and uh, it's just phenomenal. And so. Let me ask you this, Doc. Have you performed similar surgeries since that one that saved Cliff's legs? Yes, um, yes, it, and it's it's not that I invented that particular procedure, but it was mm-hmm. in plastic and reconstructive surgery. Um, it's not just the cutting and sewing; it's the thought process of how can we fix this particular hole, uh, or how can we reconstruct this breast after cancer or how can we fix uh, mm-hmm. this hand um, uh, or how can we uh, take this uh, three-month-old baby and and make them look normal instead of uh, being born with, uh, cleft with the appearance yeah, of a monster or mm-hmm. something of that sort mm-hmm. um, and so it's the it's a thought process I mean anybody can cut and sew but but moving tissues from one place to the other uh, uh, yeah, so I, I was very fortunate just to, I guess, the perseverance of uh, of Cliff's mom and and um, kind of arguing with the doctors that didn't want to release him at the time. But it's, it's mm-hmm. the s- smallest part of this whole story. The larger part is is the stick to itiveness, is the is the inspiration. Uh, yes. And Cliff and I uh, talk to groups uh, a lot about this uh, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm inspired every time every single time I listen to Cliff uh, and 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 listen to his to his commitment and to his inspiring uh, speeches um, and and we give these talks to, frequently to to medical groups or to mm-hmm. to uh, rotary clubs and things of that sort yes but it's inspiration uh, that Cliff um, gives forward and and projects mm-hmm. uh, to to an audience, uh, which is just fantastic. I'm inspired every single time I I I listen to him, and and listening to him um, deep down is is the important part, really, in my opinion. He said something that was that I wrote down because I thought it was so significant when he said persistence meets opportunity and 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 i think that that is a a, that's a real good summing up of how this happened and 
I, I would imagine you've had other stories that are like this. Do you, you want, do you have another story you'd like to share about maybe another remarkable surgery you've performed? Uh, yeah, there are, there are. <laughs> I've been around quite a while. Yeah, I've had the opportunity of, of doing, um, new things, uh, kind of uh, using my mind and, and technical mm-hmm. skills to invent new procedures and uh, things of that sort, uh, rather than, um, you know, in plastic surgery, uh, uh, we do all kinds of things aside from aesthetic surgery. Um, but I was in a particular situation where a young man uh, was on a motorcycle and, and was in an accident and his leg was actually amputated. And Oh and uh, when I uh, was brought to UCLA to do microsurgery and all kinds of reconstruction, uh, I happened to be uh, there at the time when when he was brought in by the ambulance uh, with his leg mm-hmm. cut off, and his leg actually came in a second ambulance. <laughs> it wasn't oh my God. even in the same car. So I figured, uh, unbeknownst. Uh, uh, to the history of this type of uh, situation, I said, "Well, geez, I mean, I could, I could fix this leg. I mean, I could put plates and screws on. I can fix the arteries mm-hmm. and the veins and the nerves and and uh, the tendons and stuff." And and so I just went forward. I mean, sometimes uh, when you don't know that you can't do something, you go ahead and do it. Um, and uh, it happened, so it was successful and. He was uh, 17 at the time, he, and uh, this uh, now is considered the first leg replantation in the world. And uh, and I wow. actually published it. Congratulations. Uh, and, thanks. Uh, I published it in 1979. It's, it was pretty rare because, um, you know, you see Olympians actually uh, running on prostheses. Um, Absolutely. On fantastic uh, prosthetics. And the problem is that a prosthetic can never give you sensation or sensibility to the bottom mm-hmm. part of your foot. You can't feel it uh, uh, right. to, from a piece of metal or, or, or a fake leg. And so uh, just thinking that I could hook those nerves up serendipitously so that he could feel the bottom of his foot and and he actually walked down uh, at graduation in high school, walked on two legs you know, uh, going down. Wow. And, and uh, I didn't know it at the time that it was the first first time that a leg was replanted. The Chinese mm-hmm. had very inter- interestingly, who are the real, the real um, pioneers in microsurgery and replantation. But uh, they they actually did transfer a leg, but that was three or four days afterwards where they took a right leg and put it on the left uh, upper leg uh, and put a prosthesis mm-hmm. on the other side. And it really wasn't a replantation. It was a transfer. So this particular one, anyhow, I just happened to be lucky and 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 not smart enough to know that it couldn't be done. So, uh, so it's, <laughs> well, it's very rarely a- done. You have a never-give-up attitude, my friend. That's why. You, there's nothing that, <laughs> that you wouldn't tackle. So that does, I actually had a guest on my show a couple of years ago that um, competed in the Paralympics um, playing hockey, um, sitting um, in, a, in a chair um, and, um, because she had and lost both, of, both yeah. of her legs. Yes. Um, yeah. So, Cliff, 
I want to ask you something, Cliff. So um, you, you obviously are not um, in the Olympics any longer, but what are you doing currently? You had mentioned it sounds like you do some um, motivational speaking. Is that right? Yes, I do. I do a lot of motivational speaking, and I also do a lot of uh, speaking in the safety industry as well. So that's kind of what I do. And I sit on a couple of boards uh, for local mm-hmm. Southern California Olympians and Paralympians organization. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I work a lot with different foundations. I do an annual kayak day down at the Newport Aquatic Center in Newport Beach. Uh, so I've been involved in that for many years, and you know I try to stay active. You got to stay busy and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's important in life. And I'm, I also, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a vice president for a development company. So uh, that's my nine to five. Sure, sure. Yeah, it, it, it sounds it sounds like uh, he's he's selling himself short. He's extremely bright, a bright uh, gentleman, and people have a lot of trust in his. Uh, and his ideas and his finances and so on and so forth. So um, he's uh, so Cliff, he's, uh, he's, let he's me one ask in a million. Something. The, the, how okay. how um, how is it that that Malcolm is just so willing to push the spotlight off of himself? Is that typical for him? It, uh, it is, and, and I was going to comment on that when uh, you know I have to go ahead and and, and do a plug uh, for Doctor Lessonway because. He's got he's got to be one of the most humble uh, people yes. in the world, and uh, his personality, as you know, uh, just speaking with him is infectious. You know, he's uh, always puts a smile on everybody's face, and and he'll take a difficult situation and make it easy for you to understand, and he'll make it easy for you to get through it. He's been uh, he is a pioneer in his industry. Uh, everybody knows Dr. Malcolm Lessavoy, and I, I mean, I can tell you story after story after story on how all mm-hmm. this works. In fact, I'll tell you a real quick one here is I was, sure. you know, at my older age, I'm lifting weights in the gym. Uh, there's this one local kid, uh, a friend of mine that uh, is getting into kayaking and he's doing all this stuff. So we go to the gym and lift, and one of his friends was lifting with us for a while, and he goes, what happened to you? You know, they always have that strange look, you know, you look kind of messed yeah. up. What happened to you? So obviously you got to get into the story and all that kind of stuff. Here we go again, you know, take 100,000 times. But anyway, so he goes, Oh yeah, my, my, uh, my parents are doctors. And I said, Oh really? And I said, uh, have you ever heard of Dr. Malcolm Lessavoy? And he goes, well, I haven't, but I'm, let me ask my dad. So two weeks later he comes back. And he goes, you're not going to believe this. And I said, what? He said that my father was mentored by Dr. Lessavoy. So he was one of thousands that have come from all around the world uh, to be able to learn from Dr. Lessavoy. And he is not only a pioneer, but he's a mentor uh, in the industry. He teaches a lot of people uh, the practice of medicine and how to be the best reconstructive surgeon that you can be. And he provides one of the most important parts is he inspires them to be the best that they can be, and that's critical. Well, what ended up happening is uh, we ended up get in, getting invited uh, by him. His name is Dr. Chris DiVirgilio, and he's not only a friend of Dr. Lessonvoice, but also, as I mentioned, a mentor. And we did one speech right now that was Grand Rounds at uh, Harbor UCLA in, in uh, Carson, mm-hmm. and we're able to do a speech there. But it's amazing. I mean, uh, Dr. Lessavoy has tons of stories as well uh, about how all this, you know, circle of life comes around. Uh, my, my wife was walking one of our gold. She was walking our golden retriever uh, many years ago during the 2012 Olympics, and here's this guy 
a neighbor of ours that looks like he's at his easy top. Well, uh, they were talking <laughs> about the Olympics, and he and he goes, I know this Olympian, and my wife goes, who's that? And uh, he says, his name is Cliff Meidel. And my wife goes, oh, boy, I'm married to that guy, right? <laughs> Hopefully she had a better <laughs> answer than that. But anyway, oh, so man. it turns out that, you know what you know what his role in this whole story was? He was the what? first person on scene that revived me when I was in my accident. So oh, it's like the circle kidding. of life. And he's a, neighbor, he's a neighbor of mine. So it's amazing how the world is like Olympic rings. It's all these circles and everybody's coming together. It's that six degrees of separation. But uh, bet. Mean, Dr. Lesavoy is the hero, and he's inspired thousands of people uh, in his industry and in life. And I'm very proud Boy, to be uh, a part of his process, and I'm honored. <laughs> I, can, I see a TED Talk here. I don't know if you guys have ever done that or not, but I, I can just see you being on stages where, I mean, what industry wouldn't want you speaking? I mean, you're, it's such an encouraging relationship because each of you are passing it off to the other, which I find um, really, really cool. And I, so, Cliff, let me ask you, because um, I know we don't have a lot of time left, um, you mentioned they are speaking professionally. Um, so, do you speak to do you speak to just construction people, or do you speak to all types of people? Oh, all types of people. Anybody that wants to hire me, whether you're Fortune 500 or your construction company Fortune okay. 500, it, it really doesn't matter. A part, my story shares uh, a lot of uh, different facets that come together. I speak a lot on overcoming adversity, as, as you've mm-hmm. heard in a lot of what we had discussed today. Uh, and I also mm-hmm. talk a lot about how that applies into working safe on the work site. So I always like to inject the, you know, the human behavioral side of things and how we can make choices to be, uh, be able to be going out there and working safe 24-7. So uh, my you story bodes in, in many different areas. And for Dr. Lesavoy and I, uh, you know, we, if anybody out there in our audience has an opportunity for us, we'll take it. Uh, we love speaking together. Uh, it allows us to spend time together. Uh, mm-hmm. And we like to inspire other people to be the best that they can be. And, and whether it's technical, uh, as Dr. Lesavoy said earlier, whether we can speak or have the opportunity to speak to the medical industry or any industry, uh, we'd love to do it. And if you can have us come out and speak, uh, we'll be there, ready to go. I think that's tr- I think that's tr- just fabulous. I, I'm I'm certainly going to mention this to my daughter. Um, so um, these last few moments, Malcolm. What, what's up next for you? Is there something that that you're looking to do in the near future that that's on your agenda? Uh, well, the 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 future is always you know always bright, and um, uh-huh. uh, I, I do now aesthetic surgery, uh, you know, facelifts, breasts, uh, mm-hmm. tummy tucks, all this kind of stuff. Uh, now mm-hmm. to continue to make a living and. And um, uh, I used to, uh, either before Zoom, actually, uh, mm-hmm. I was visiting professor at a lot of different places around the world and doing surgery, um, demonstration and lecturing and so on and so forth. But, you know, Zoom really cut down, uh, not Zoom, but uh, the, uh, you know, COVID cut down all of this, oh, the pandemic. this travel right. stuff. Exactly. Right. Um, but Cliff and I, uh, we we really enjoy each other's company, as uh, hopefully you can tell. And and yes. uh, I learn so much uh, from him every every time every time we talk. And and our mm-hmm. our talks are always different. And it's interesting. We have a whole really great uh, slide presentation uh, PowerPoint uh, 
situation uh, for uh, p- people. And we uh, we can give as short as 15, 20-minute talks or two or three-hour talks and wow. seminars and things of that sort. And, and we really enjoy it. And, and I learn so much uh, each time we do this. Um, Mm-hmm. And uh, from Cliff and and uh, it's really a, it's been a, a life changing situation for me. Uh, and I mean, I have many many patients. Uh, you know, I mean thousands. So I've been, sure. been doing this for a long time, over forty years. And um, but I I learn from every single patient. But but this guy is. Uh, uh, I mean, he's you know he's. He's, uh, he's unbelievable, truly unbelievable in, in so many different ways. Uh, mm. But the inspiration and the persistence, uh, mostly inspiration, uh, mm-hmm. that we all gain from listening to him and listening to his story uh, and listening to the adversity that he went through as a, as a kid, essentially 19 right. years old. Um, I mean, who, 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 who does something like that? Uh, right. We know many people that do it, but not, but not, not to that same level, and and not to the same, to the goal that he had achieved, mm-hmm. which is uh, unbelievable, truly unbelievable. Well, and you know, Cliff, let me just say this: um, I'm a parent as well. Um, I'm sure that you have an enormous respect for your parents and how they stood by you as you went through all of this, and your brother. You mentioned you had a brother. Um, it's it's pretty remarkable what you've been able to accomplish. And do you have some um, something that's just up next for you that just like you know this is I want I really want to be able to do this. Do you have do you have it on your go to list? Yeah, I have something that I have shelved for many years. Uh, I was doing a literary project with a gentleman. Uh, by the name of Ron Rappaport out of the Chicago Sun-Times many years ago, and we created together uh, a manuscript in order to kind of uh, use that as a vehicle uh, to uh, potentially publish a book one day. And so we basically put it on the shelf because uh, I was still in the process of uh, developing life experiences and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I think one of my days, my dream would be to be able to write a book. Uh, I'd love to do something like that, and uh, that would lead into uh, doing a speaking campaign that would be around that. Yeah, I'd love that. Yeah. Well, I got, I'm going to stick my hand up in the air because I know people in the film industry. This is a movie, dude. You can write the book. I think the book would be great, but I can't be the first person that has said, man, this is a movie. This is a documentary. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm certain that I cannot be the first person that has said that to you, right? It, yeah, I think that the, the great part about it is is that uh, the way the story weaves with Dr. Lesboy and I and the friendship that goes behind it and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how all of this came about. You know, I mean, we could, as Dr. Lesboy said, you know, we could do a two- or three-hour speech very easily on all sure. of the stories that we have in our back pocket, you know and how all of this works. I mean, there's so much of this that is part of uh, human development and human life. I mean, everybody uh, can benefit from this and listening to these stories because what it does is it allows you an opportunity to sit back and reflect and say, hey, man, I went through something like this in life or, you know, here's what I did and all that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, when we listen to things, I think the important part of storytelling and story sharing is be able to provide us, as Dr. Lesson said, it's a vehicle for us to become inspired. 
uh, it's a vehicle for us if we're going through hardship to be able to develop that that initial spark to be able to stand up and believe in yourself and look in the mirror and say, I'm going to be able to accomplish this. You know, do we have a blueprint on how we're going to get through it? That's not important at all whatsoever. It's just about believing right. ourselves initially. And as Dr. Lessonboy said, you know, in his trade uh, that he is in, it's all about being able to use the mind. Uh, he had said anybody can cut and sew, but it's being able to take that creativity and apply it into the current situation. I think that for all of our audiences, uh, Dr. Lessonboy and I uh, have something for them. You know, we have something for you out there if you would like to listen to us and all that. So. We want to inspire you to well, be the best that you can be. Well, and you know, that's that is inspiring. And and you know, we never know when we share these stories. I know, you know, next week I'll have different guests. We never know by sharing a story how someone that's listening may be affected. Look I mean, exactly. look at your mom. You know, it, it, we, if, you, if you live in a box with your, with your hands preventing you from seeing on either side and you're just closing in, you're, you're missing out on an opportunity. And we don't know where these opportunities come from, but if you're able to share them and provide that kind of inspiration, as you mentioned, then, then it's the gift that keeps on giving. I guess that's how I would say that, and I feel that way when I have such remarkable guests as both of you gentlemen today. I just I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. I know we did a lot of prep work ahead of time, which was hilarious, I might add. And, um, and that this has just been um, a very inspiring story. And I just want to thank you both so much for sharing your part in that. It's been fabulous. Uh, it, was our, it was our honor to... Uh... To participate, and we really thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this was awesome. I, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I I look forward to following along. And I, I I want I can't wait to read the book and see the documentary. So we'll have to see what we can do about that. All right, but for now Let's we're going to just <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, for those of us that are in the Los Angeles area um having more rain than we ever wish we could ever have you know just be safe out there everyone i know that there's crazy weather everywhere but we've had certainly our share of 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 rain lately so um but let's not let it damper what a fabulous opportunity this was to get to know each other and once again just thank you so very much for spending this afternoon with me it's it's been fabulous thank you Okay, everybody, there you have it. So, actually, I have a nurse next week. Well, you just never know who's going to be joining me, right? So thank you so much, everyone. Be safe, and I'll see you again next week. Bye for now. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know 
all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.